Your mission, and you cannot refuse it, is to go all over the island of Crete and install qualified leaders in the churches so that they can teach God's people to live godly lives of good works in a godless and lost day. This message did not self-destruct in five minutes. Praise God. Or five seconds even. Because God knew that Grace Church in 2017 AD would need this very same message for us to be able to honor God today. Well, good morning. Welcome to Grace Church. I hope you have a copy of your Bible with you today. Please open with me to Titus chapter 1. We're going to be looking in the book of Titus. Today we're going to be picking up this series, our expository series, which we kind of let go of uh, just prior to Easter as we made our way through four weeks uh, wrapped around the Easter season. Uh, so today I'm going to pick it up and run with it. Um, next week uh, is Mother's Day weekend. But it also happens to be the time where my son is going to be graduating from Grace Christian Academy. Finally, we got another one out of the house. No, 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 no. I don't, I don't mean that much. I love you, man. Um, but the reality is we've got family coming in all this week. We're going to have a bunch of people here next week. And because of all the festivities of the weekend, including my granddaughter coming to see her grandfather... And it's not that my daughter's bringing her daughter. Uh, my granddaughter's coming to see her grandfather. That's how that works. Uh, so I will be Sportner uh, next week uh, very proudly. Uh, so next week, Matt Duransky is going to be sharing uh, in, in the Mother's Day message. And he's going to be speaking from uh, Titus 2 on biblical womanhood. Uh, if you would pray for Matt, he's never been a woman. That God would give him wisdom to handle the scriptures in a way that honors mothers and, and the beauty of this thing called biblical womanhood uh, as God designed it. So pray for Matt. That's going to be a high task for him. I'm just very grateful uh, that he's willing to do that for me. And uh, in two weeks, as Dennis mentioned, we're going to be doing this thing called the State of the Church Address. And uh, it's going to be a really good morning. Uh, we're going to look back and talk about some of the things God's been doing over the last uh, number of months here in the life of the church, and they've been glorious. We're going to look at, around and just enjoy the beauty of the body that God has given us. And then we're going to look to the future. And we believe God has more things in, in mind for us, and we're going to talk about that then. So that's the next couple of weeks. But today, we're going to focus our attention on Titus again, in Titus chapter 1. And so if you will, today, we are going to look again at Titus. I want you to appoint godly leaders. And uh, we're talking about appointing godly leaders in the church to grow God's people in godliness. And so this is where we're going to be focused today. If you will, we're going to be appoint godly leaders part 3. Why? Because leadership's important, very important. I'm taking a little extra time in this section because I really want to emphasize the importance of biblical leadership in the life of the church. Everything rises and falls on leadership. Nations rise, nations fall based upon its leadership. Companies rise, companies fall based upon its leadership. Uh, military units rise and military units fall based upon its leadership. Families rise or families fall based upon its leadership. Churches rise or churches fall based upon its leadership. 
So we have been taking some time to walk through this section in Titus chapter 1 on what biblical elders look like. And again, we are, we'll draw some truth out of um, Timothy, 1 Timothy chapter 3, because Paul was writing to both these young protégés that he put in particular places, Titus in the island of Crete and Timothy in the city of Ephesus. And he wrote to them both about leadership. So we're looking into this thing about leadership. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to race real quickly uh, through what we talked about thus far. And if you want more detail, please uh, go to our website, gracewaldorf.org, and there click on messages and you'll find them there. Or get our app, the Bible app, and in there you'll find the messages, both audio and video, available for you to listen to. So I'm not going to go in depth on any of this. I just want to set context for where we're going today. So... Titus, this is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remains in order, and I want you to appoint, there's the key word, elders. Elders is a very key word, and from that one word, the word presbyteros, we can derive a whole lot of information to help us to know what biblical leadership, church leadership, is meant to look like. And so, first thing we realized when we looked at this a few weeks back is that Presbyterus refers to primary church leadership. God's design over his people is that there will be people who are responsible for the oversight of the flock, to feed, to lead, to guide, and to protect the flock. And God has given that responsibility to a group of people referred to as elders. So it is the primary level of church leadership, those people who are ultimately responsible for what happens in the life of the church. But the word presbyteros also happens to be in the plural. It is in the plural, and from that we derive the reality, of, as well as some other scriptures, that it's also meant to be a plurality of primary church leadership. It's not one guy. It's not one guy. Now, I've, I've pastored in several Baptist churches, and generally the Baptist form of government is the pastor's the elder, and then there's a board of deacons who serve him, I mean, that serve the church. Uh, and so in a lot of ways, in, in, in these types of arrangements, you have what is sometimes known as the Baptist Pope. He's the guy, you know? He went to the mountain, he got the word from God, he comes back and we all do what the pastor tells us to do. And, and that kind of arrangement is, is, I guess it works in some situations, but in reality, there was a plurality. Uh, shared leadership was the way that churches were meant to function in the first century, and hence I would say that that's probably the healthiest way they're called to function today. So it is plurality of primary church leadership, and it just so happens that the word presbyteros also happens to be in the masculine, and from that we can derive that it was meant to be a plurality of male primary church leadership. I know in our day and age that that is not a popular position to hold, I get that, uh, but the only problem with that is it's what the Bible says. You don't want to take it up with me, please don't take it up with God. Uh, I often hide behind the word of God because I'm a chicken and I only say what it says. So there is a plurality of male primary leadership and then it's not just any guys who are called to lead the church. Last time we were together we talked in Titus, we talked about a plurality of godly male leadership. And so um, we looked at length at that idea of godliness, and it all comes out of Titus 1, 5 through 9. And the key word there is this idea of being above reproach. Above reproach. Now, above reproach means blameless, not sinless. 
Because if we're looking for sinless guys to lead us, guess what? Ain't nobody going to lead. God's not calling sinlessly perfect people because there aren't any. He's calling blameless people to come and lead the people of God. Blameless has to do with character. But it also has to do with that which is observable. And so when we talk about candidates for elders uh, in a church, we're talking about people that you can observe their life. And in observing their life, in their primary relationships in that life, you can tell a lot about their character. And so what we have here is if anyone is above reproach, the idea is, is blameless in the relationship with his wife. The husband of one wife. Now that's a term that has been twisted and, and there's so many ideas of what that could mean. But quite frankly, I think it only means, it simply means this. It is observably, in other words, it is evident by the way he speaks of her and she speaks of him that they have marital fidelity. It is clear that he has a wholehearted devotion to his wife. We're looking for a man who loves his wife. Because if he doesn't know how to lead and love his wife, how can he lead and love the church? If that's his primary responsibility, how could he then pick up the responsibility of church if he's not doing that at home? This is very practical stuff. Very practical stuff. And so look at his primary relationship, his relationship with his wife. But don't just look at that. I also want you to see how his children, how he, how he works in relationship to his children. He says his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. Now, I don't think that's the best translation for this verse. I think the word believers, which can also be translated faithful, it, the word faithful here is a much better translation. The word and here actually isn't in the original language. It was merely added by the translators to try and make sense of the word believers. But if you read it with the word faithful, and his children are faithful, not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. I think that's really what he's saying. Hey, Titus, when you look at these potential candidates to lead the church, I want you to look at how he treats his wife, and I want you to look at how he treats his children. Is it evident that his children show a consistent application of biblical discipline and nurture? It is not that the potential elder's home is conflict-free because there is no such a thing, but how does he handle conflict when it arises? Does he use a biblical way of dealing with things? Again, uh, the, uh, the synonymous verse found in 1 Timothy, Titus 1, 1 Timothy 3, both talk about elders. Uh, the, the, the verse that's like this in 1 Timothy 3, 4 says this, he must manage his own family well, having his children who respect and obey him. So that's what he's talking about here. So he's talking about his primary relationship with his wife. Observe it. How does he deal with his life? Does he love her? Is he a one-woman man? What does it look like in his, his home life? What do his kids look like? But not only that, I want you to look at how he treats everybody else. How, is, how does his relationship with other people look? He must not be arrogant, quick-tempered, or a drunkard, or violent, or greedy of gain. Those things should not be true of him, but rather, in his relationship with other people, he is hospitable, open, and receiving, and accepting, welcoming a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. So Titus, what Titus is doing is he is looking at the conduct of the individuals being considered uh, for the role of elder in the local church. Because conduct 
gives us a window into his character. And these men must begin to have the appearance of Christ-likeness in their relationship with their wife, in their relationship with their kids, in their relationship with others. And if you see maturing people, maturing men, and, and those who are growing into maturity in that way, then you have potentially found a candidate who can serve the body of Christ in a way that honors God. So there's some very straightforward truth here about the kind of people that are supposed to be over the house of God. Why? Because everything rises and falls on leadership. And if men have character that is not consistent with who Christ is, then that doesn't spell good uh, times for the church. So this is where we kind of have walked already. And uh, I unveiled for you, if you will, uh, the men that we are gathering together to help lead in this informal elder group until we as a church can vote on elders uh, in the near future. And uh, I got the privilege of introducing to you, uh, not just me uh, and Dennis, uh, we are what you would call paid elders. Uh, I guess you could call me the teaching paid elder and Dennis is the paid ruling elder uh, at this point. But what we're going to do is bring on some other men to work with us to carry the responsibility of the church. And uh, I'm pleased to say that Reverend Dr. Uh, Jerry uh, Small is joining us in this group. Uh, he's been a pastor for more years than he wasn't a pastor. And then also uh, Matt Duransky uh, is going to be joining our team uh, along with Jack Sup. Very pleased to have Jack on there along with Steve Salvis. So these are the men right now that observably talking, if you know these men, you know they're blameless. They love their wives, they love their children, and they treat other people with love and respect. So these are the men we're starting with. You know, we'll obviously, as time goes on, we'll vote in other people that help to reflect the congregation more. But this is just where we're starting at this point. Um, I'm excited. If everything rises and falls on leadership, friends, Grace Church is rising. These are good days. These are great men. This is a great opportunity for this church to continue to be used of God as we continue to become more biblical in our church polity. So I'm really thrilled about this. Now, <laughs> the message. See, I've taken all this time for the intro. Now we're getting ready to actually share with you the next step in what we're talking about. And I've chosen to leave verse 9 for itself because this is the relationship with his wife and his children and other people, and those are vital. But also vital in choosing the right elders to govern and lead the church is the man's relationship to the Word of God. Because ultimately it is the Word that will guide the flock of God. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as it is taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also rebuke those who contradict it. Let's pray. Father, thank you for always desiring what's best for our lives. Uh, the Word of God is uh, a beautiful, beautiful uh, a testament to your love and your goodness and your faithfulness to us. And I thank you for this um, understanding of the men who are called to lead your people. 
I'm glad that it's as clear as it is. And I'm glad that the bar is high, but not so high that nobody could ever clear it. I just pray, Father, that you would speak to us in these next few moments about the truths that are in front of us. Because I think we can all come away from this morning deeply changed based upon what we're about to hear. Open our hearing, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Okay, okay. So we're going to talk about this idea of, of potential elder candidates and the need for them to hold firm to the trustworthy word as it is taught. Now the word hold firm is a singular word in the original language. And it has the idea to grasp the word. Uh, I think it's both physically and metaphorically. They grasp the word. It also has the idea to embrace. Now remember, you're looking at his relationships in his life. You're seeing, does he embrace and love his wife? Does he embrace and love his kids? Does he embrace and love the people of God? Does he embrace and love the word of God? Because that's a key element in the people that are called to lead the people of God. He needs to love the word. Let me show you uh, from the scriptures... Uh, this word to, to, to hold firm or to, yeah, hold firm uh, is only used four times in the New Testament, only four times. And two of those times comes from the lips of Jesus. So let me share with you what Jesus has to say concerning this. It's found in Matthew chapter 6 out of something called the Sermon on the Mount in verse 24. This is what Jesus said. This is one of the instances, only four, that it's used. No one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will hold to, there's our word, to one, and then despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. So what are you saying is this? You've got to make a choice. You've got to make a choice. Is it going to be God that you hold to and are devoted to? Or is it going to be money that you're going to be holding to and devoted to? Because you can't do both. So in your life, you have to make the decision, I'm either all in with God or I'm all in my own. You can't walk that middle line. And so an elder candidate is someone who has long ago determined that they are all in with God. And it's interesting, the translation here in a lot of our Bibles, it doesn't use the word hold to. It uses the word devoted. Are you devoted to Jesus? It also means loyal. Are you loyal to Jesus? You see, you need to make that choice. I'm going to hold to, I'm going to uh, be devoted to, uh, I'm going to be loyal to Jesus, I'm going to be loyal to something else. And so what it's saying here is potential elder candidates, when it comes to the word of God, they hold to it. They're devoted to it. They're loyal to it. And no matter what, they won't let go of it. You know, there are a lot of churches today that are bending all over the place with the blowing winds of our age. You know, people want to redefine marriage. Oh, okay, let's do that. People want to redefine gender. Oh, okay, if that's what people want. People want to redefine biblical roles. People want to define, redefine good and evil. And there are churches all over the place that are giving into the headwinds of our culture. Yeah, let's do that. Let's do this. Can I just say... 
You want men leading you who hold firmly and are devoted and loyal to the word of God first and foremost. Not people who go like this, "Uh, which way is the wind blowing? I think we'll do that. You see, the challenge is putting the right men in leadership because they are in love with Jesus through his word. And ultimately, no matter who is arrayed against them, They are willing to stand upon the word and say, Thus saith the Lord. I have no choice. I'm not saying, which way is the wind blowing? I'm saying, what does God have to say? Those are the men that are called to lead the people of God. You know, as I was looking at this word, to hold firm, uh, there was a, a, a famous line in a movie Uh, that came to my mind. Uh, It's actually from the 1950s movie. 1950s movie. Yes, uh, (laughs) uh, on the great reformer Martin Luther. Uh, Martin Luther um, is the great uh, reformer. In fact, um, in October, uh, we are coming up onto the 500th anniversary of the great time where he nailed the 95 Theses to the Wittenberg Castle door, standing in opposition to a lot of the teaching that was happening within the Roman Catholic Church. And so, in this movie clip, he has set himself at odds against Pope Leo X and the Holy Roman Emperor Charles V. And Luther stood by his convictions in spite of the fact that the greatest ecclesiastical power was arrayed against him, him, and the greatest political and military might was arrayed against him, and yet he stood on the word. In fact, why don't you watch this clip? It's pretty profound. Yesterday you admitted these writings were yours. Will you tell us now, do you persist in what you have written here, or are you prepared to retract these writings and the beliefs they contain? I ask pardon if I lack the manners that befit this court. I was not brought up in king's palaces, but in the seclusion of a cloister. I am asked to retract these writings, but they are of different kinds. In some I discuss faith and good works. If I were to retract these, I should be denying accepted Christian truths. In others, I attack popery and assail men who have afflicted the Christian world and ruined the bodies and souls of other men. If I were to retract those, I should be like a cloak that covers evil. Most serene emperor, illustrious princes, noble lords, I am only a man and not God. But I must defend myself as did Jesus Christ when he said, as I say now, if I have spoken evil, bear witness against me. Martin Luther, you have not yet answered the question. Give us a simple answer. Will you recant or will you not? You ask for a simple answer. Here it is. 
unless you can convince me by scripture and not by popes or councils who have often contradicted each other, unless I am so convinced that I am wrong, I am bound to my beliefs by the texts of the Bible. My conscience is captive to the word of God. To go against conscience is neither right nor safe. Therefore, I cannot and I will not recant. Here I stand. I can do no other. God help me. Amen. My mind is held captive to the word of God. I can't give in. I can't give up. Because this is what God says. These are the kind of men that you want leading the local church. Men of great character. People who love their wives and love their kids. And treat people with love and respect and can work with people. But above all, you want people to know how to handle the word of God. Because it's the word of God that leads the people of God. My mind is held captive. It's not safe to go against conscience. And so when it comes to that word, it's a very important word. But the, the question remains, how is it possible for a man to have such deep convictions concerning this book? How is it possible that somebody can be so committed to the truth of God's word that no matter what, no matter who is assailed against them, they're willing to stand strong in the face of whatever? The key to that is actually right here in the text as well. He must hold firm, stand strong. He must not give in. And this is the key, to the trustworthy word, to the trustworthy word as it is taught. It is the teachings themselves. Please listen, this is important. It is the teachings themselves. It is the doctrines of the word of God that make it trustworthy that make it reliable, that make it truthful. Again, another commentator, this is a, a Lutheran commentator, that just seems to fit having just looked at Martin Luther. His name is R.C.H. Lenski, great commentator. He said this about, about this idea of the trustworthy word. He said this, the word whose contents, and there's the key, the word whose contents make it reliable and worthy of confidence and trust, and except for its doctrines or its teachings, it could not be reliable. It still sounds a little convoluted. Let me give you another person's viewpoint. His name is Jesus. Here we go. Jesus put it this way. In John chapter 17 and verse 17, speaking to his Father in heaven in his high priestly prayer, he said, your word is truth. And in John chapter 8 and verse 32, he said this, and, and let me just make sure I get it straight because I don't want to give you anything wrong. He said this, and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. You see, an elder candidate, somebody who has such a conviction to the veracity of the word of God, is somebody who has 
experienced the doctrine in their own life? And in light of the reality of the transforming effect that the Word of God has, they're convinced it's true. Am I getting you there? Am I getting you there? This is, okay, let me do it this way. The Bible is not true because it works. It works because it's truth. Does that make sense? You see, this is the conviction of the man who has been interacting with the Word of God. It's changed his life. And how can you not say, oh my gosh, this is more than any book. It's my life. And hence, this is the kind of individual ultimately that you want leading the people of God. Somebody who is in love with Jesus and the Word and his wife and his kids. But the Word. Let me just kind of give to you a, a few convictions that I think become evident um, from the text and, and for the man who is to be uh, an elder. First of all, when it comes to the contents or the teachings of the Bible, of the Word of God, the elder candidate is convinced that the source of the contents of the Word of God is none other than God himself. This is not just any book. This is not just any, any writing. It's, it's not just a nice compilation of stories or myths or folklore. This is the living word of God. And the, and, the, and the elder candidate knows that there's something extremely special about this. And it comes from God. I love what Paul's told Timothy. He said this, all scripture is breathed by God. Friends, this is God's breath. It's his breath. Have you ever wanted to feel the breath of God on you? Go like this. Oh, it's beautiful. Oh, yeah. This is the breath of God. It's not just human writings. It's God's very word. It's God's very breath. In fact, that's what he goes on to say in Peter. When we put these scriptures together, they're beautiful. All scripture is breathed out by God. It's his literal breath. It's his word. And men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So the primary conviction that comes to the man who's called to lead the people of God is this book is no ordinary book. This book is the Word of God. You know, we live in a day and age uh, where that's simply not enough to say anymore. Somebody put together this little thought, and I, I thought it was brilliant. Uh, they said this, just to illustrate how times have changed... Not many years ago, all one had to say to affirm their belief in the full inspiration of the Bible was to say, I believe the Word of God. That used to be sufficient. I believe the Word of God. Oh, he believes the Word is God's Word. However, it has become necessary now to add the inspired Word of God. Oh, oh wait, actually, that's not even enough today anymore. It, then we had to add the idea that it is plenarily, verbally inspired Word of God. Plenary means fully. Verbally means to the very words. Inspired means it comes directly from God. But that's still not enough. Today we have to even go a little further and say it is the plenary, fully, verbally to the very words, infallible, cannot be altered, inspired directly from God, inerrant in the original manuscripts, Word of God. We have to keep adding things to try and clarify that we believe it comes from God. The sad part is today, within the church, only 44%, according to George Barna, only 44% of born-again people believe strongly 
that the Bible is totally accurate in all its teachings. That's a minority of the church. <laughs> and you can look at a lot of churches and you can say, I believe they don't believe the word. Look at the way the church is gone. You want men over the church who have a full belief that the word of God is from God himself. Secondly, not only that, um, but not only does he have conviction that the source of the contents of the word of God come from God, but he also has the conviction and the experience as to the uniqueness of the contents of the word of God. By that I mean this. He knows on a personal level the grace of God. The grace of God. This is a very important topic, and I'm actually going to take just a few extra minutes to kind of really hit this home, because this is the key difference between Christianity and every other religion in the world. And it's this concept called grace. Now, I actually believe in Titus. This was the point that Titus was seeking to make when he talked about, hey, you need to give instruction in sound doctrine. You need to uh, help people adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. The doctrine I think he's really talking about is the doctrine of grace. The doctrine of grace. I think that's the key element that he was trying to hit home in the book of Titus. Why do I think that? Because of the way he wrote the book. He said in Titus chapter 1 and verse 4, grace, there's a, so he begins the book with the word grace. Grace and peace from God the Father in Christ Jesus our Savior. Now, Paul would often write letters with this preface, grace and peace, grace and peace, grace and peace. Never peace and grace. Never peace and grace. Because you can't have peace until you've experienced grace. That's why. So grace, he begins the letter by talking about grace. Grace that ultimately gives peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ our Savior. And then he ends the book with these words. Grace be with you all. So he begins with grace, he ends with grace. And 20% of the contents of the book of Titus are taken up in two large segments about grace. So this is what I think his point of emphasis is. When it comes to the, the doctrine uh, that we are to hold to, primarily as elders over the church, the doctrine of grace. What is grace? What is grace? Well, uh, allow me to share with you uh, some thoughts by a man by the name of Charles Bunton. He's a commentator. Uh, I think he captures it very well, so please bear with me. I don't normally read a lot in front of you, but I, I want to just read part of this, and I think you're going to get a lot out of it. Here we go. Charles Bunton says, In all the vastness of our world, in all the diversity of religious beliefs, there are only two essential types of belief, works and grace. There seem to be so many differences between the world's religions, but they are all essentially the same. They all center around human works. All human uh, beings, uh, all involve human uh, beings accomplishing a task or a set of tasks to achieve a goal and to receive a reward. Now the tasks may, different, may differ between religions. The goals may be different and have different names. And the reward might, might be many things, whether it's heaven, paradise, or nirvana, or whatever lies beyond. But the principle underlying all these religions is exactly the same. Quid pro quo. In Latin, that means this for that. 
this for that. If I do this, you give me that. That's how it works, right? That's what most religions teach. The world's religions, when it comes to salvation, they, they refer to it as righteousness or oneness with the infinite or perfect nothingness or whatever the term in a particular religion may be, is always earned by what one does. He goes on to say this, unfortunately, within this group of religions based on human effort are many species of religions that go by the name of Christianity. How sad. True, biblical Christianity, the faith once delivered to the saints, is totally distinct from the world's religions in this area and in so many others. The thing that makes Christianity different, i.e. unique, from all the other religions is the concept or its teachings of grace. Grace, grace is the key to the Christian life. It is the reality of Christianity. It all comes back to grace. So what is grace? Well, let me take you to this portion of Scripture. In Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 10, the Apostle Paul gives us a very clear understanding of exactly what grace is. Here we go. And you were dead. He's talking to us. He's talking to you. So let's read that in there, shall we? And we were dead. Why don't you read with me? I'll step down here so we can all see. And we were dead in the trespasses and sins. All of us in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So Paul begins by explaining our hopeless condition. We were dead spiritually, and we were fit for nothing but God's just and righteous wrath. We were rebels and in bondage to sin and to Satan. This is humanity from the moment of conception. You ready for some grace? Oh my gosh, in the midst of such horrendous ugliness, in the midst of such horribleness, in the, in the midst of such hopelessness, this is where grace shines. Here we go. Say it with me. No, say it again. That's grace. That's grace. God could have simply allowed us to go off the end of the planet into eternity apart from Jesus Christ. He could have done it and he would have been just and righteous in doing so. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he has loved us, even when we were dead, he made us alive together with Christ. Friends, that's grace. That's what grace is. A definition of grace is simply this. In his mercy and love, totally of his own free will, he selected and saved us. That's grace. Unearned, unmerited love and mercy in Jesus. Grace. God's riches at Christ's expense given to us who could never earn it or desire it. But God That's grace. You say, wow, Pastor Bill. Like, who am I that God would do that? Well, let me answer that question. 
you, my friend, are a worm. Oh, you're hurting my self-esteem. I'm sorry. The Bible's very specific. We're all sinners to the core. The heart is deceitful and desperately wicked. Who even really understands it? I mean, the longer I walk with Jesus, the more I see the desperate condition of my own heart. Who am I? You're nobody. God's everything. Well, what did I do? Nothing. That's the key. God gave it. Let me show you how he finishes this section because it makes it very clear. Grace is 100% from God. Salvation is 100% a gift from God. Here we go. He finishes with this. For by grace, by grace, you have been saved through faith. And all God's people said, woohoo! Doesn't get any better than that. And this is not your own doing. Get over yourself. It is the gift of God. It's not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. This is the key. This is the key. Salvation is 100% a work of God. And we are unable because of our bondage to sin and rebellion to do anything to merit God's favor, and yet God gives it to us. Really? If you keep the preposition straight, you get grace. You mess up the prepositions, you don't get grace. So let me show you exactly what this is saying. It is for, by grace, the unmerited, the unearnable. Is that a word, unearnable? All right, I just made it up if it's not. It is the unmerited, unearnable goodness and favor of God. By grace, you have been saved through faith. You say, well, I did that. Well, actually, if you read the rest of the text, you didn't. And this is not your own. You didn't do it. It's a gift from God. The gift from God is all of this. Salvation is a gift, which includes this, a gift from God. It is not the result of works so that no one may boast, for we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus, and here's the key, for good works. Not based upon our good works. If you get that messed up, if you say for, uh, by good works, you have been saved through something, you're lost. Because grace isn't given to those people who do good. I'll talk more about that in a second. By grace, through faith, unto or for good works. That's the result of being in relationship with God. It's not how you come into relationship with God. So this is the key phrase. This is grace. Now let me just finish reading a little bit more from Charles Bunton. Because it will clarify things. The grace of God is so simple and yet so profound that it's beyond the greatest mind to fully understand. It stands in complete opposition to the other world religions and the ideas that make us, that, that we have about earning our way in the world, about people getting what they deserve, about fairness, and about the independence of human beings. It is not performance-based. I so appreciate how we began today. That was perfect. That is what makes the Bible's teaching on grace one of the most controversial and even hated teachings in all of the world. Because it so totally undermines and removes all traces of human pride. The doctrine of grace teaches that we are totally unable to save ourselves, 
to help in our salvation, to do anything to merit all or part of our salvation, or even to keep ourselves saved. We are saved totally as an act of God's will. And we do not deserve it in any way. Indeed, those that are saved are equally, if not more, deserving of hell as those who actually go there. Let me say that one more time. This is the key to grace. Those who are saved by grace are equally, if not more, deserving of hell than those who actually go there. This is the most important first principle in understanding grace. No one, no one in the entire human race deserves any consideration from God. We are all rebels and sinners. We all deserve hell. Except for God's plan of redemption, God could rightly have sent the entire human race to eternal punishment long ago. He didn't. But he didn't. To God be the glory. You see, grace rightly understood humbles us. It makes us look up with grateful hearts. If grace touches your life, the result is gratitude. Rightly understood. So to God be the glory. There's this great old hymn that goes like this. To God be the glory, great things he has done. So loved he the world that he gave us his son, who yielded his life a redemption from sin and opened the life gate that all may ultimately go in. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Let the whole earth hear his voice. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Let the people rejoice. Oh, come to the Father through Jesus his son and give him the glory, great things he hath done. What a great song. What a great truth. To God be the glory. Verse 2. This is the scandal part of grace. O perfect redemption, the purchase of blood, to every believer the promise of God, the vilest offender who truly believes that moment from Jesus a pardon receives. This past week, as many of you know, to my own chagrin, I happen to be a New England Patriots football fan. Uh, this past week, uh, a lot has come out uh, about a man by the name of Aaron Hernandez. Aaron Hernandez was one of the tight ends who played on the Patriots a few years back. Uh, he was arrested for murdering uh, a friend, supposedly, uh, Mr. Lloyd. He was convicted of that murder and given a life sentence. He was just recently released from two other murders. He wasn't convicted. But Aaron Hernandez, a couple, three weeks ago, committed suicide in his jail cell in Massachusetts. This week, information came out as to what they found in that cell. And one of the things they found in Aaron Hernandez's cell is a Bible. And it was opened up to John chapter 3. And alongside verse 16, pressed in blood, was for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. They discovered that he had slashed his middle finger, and not only did he put blood on John 3.16 in an open Bible, he left there along with some letters to his loved ones. He also took that blood and put a dot on each of his feet. Wrote John 3.16 on his forehead in blood and wrote John 3.16 on his jail cell in blood. And then he took shampoo, put it all over the floor to make it so slick that he couldn't stand, and then he hung himself with a sheet. Aaron Hernandez was a vile human being. 
He was an evil man that everybody who knew him said, what a waste. He wasted his life and he ruined the lives of so many others. And yet, if in that moment, and I have no idea what happened. I don't know his heart. I don't know what God did. But if in that moment, the vilest person who truly believes in that moment from Jesus receives a pardon for all his sins. Listen. Eternal life is not a reward for being good. It isn't. It is a gift to those who know they're not. Which means this, and again, I don't know his heart, but Aaron Hernandez could be in heaven, and your next-door neighbor, a lovely middle-class family, loves his wife, loves his kids, they pay their taxes, they're law-abiding citizens, they could go to hell. Because it's not based on goodness. It's based on grace. The unmerited favor of God that touches a life, redeems a life, brings a life into the kingdom, and that person can be the vilest person on earth. And the good people don't make it. It's not based on works. It is not based on works. You may be sitting there saying, well, that's not fair. <laughs> you know what? You're right. It's not fair. It's not about fairness. If you, <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Let me just say this. Uh, if, it, if it were, it's not about fairness. If it were, none of us would ever be right with God. Because if God did what was fair, we would get what we deserve. And what do we deserve? Hell. Hell. So it's not about fairness. It's about grace. Let me ask you, is it fair that you're sitting here today and you love Jesus? And yet 2.91 billion people in this world are in unevangelized parts of our continent. Is, does that make any sense? No. How do you explain that? Grace. How do you understand that? Grace. You're no better than any of them. Maybe you're worse than most of them. I don't know. But it's Grace. It's coming to Christ and saying, nothing in my hand I bring, simply to your cross I cling. I am so unworthy. And in that moment, the vilest sinner, the moment he truly believes, will from Christ a pardon receive. That's grace. Grace, grace, grace. Oh, you know, there's so many beautiful songs about the grace of God. Here we go. Uh, ever heard of Amazing Grace? Why is that such a beloved song? Listen to his words. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I called you a wretch. It's true. I once was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. What do I see? God's grace. Why am I found? God's grace. What did I do? Nothing. Wonderful grace of Jesus. Greater than all my sin. How shall my tongue describe it? Where shall my praise begin? Taking away my burden, setting my spirit free. Oh, the wonderful grace of Jesus reaches me. Who am I? Nobody. But it reached me. Thank you, Jesus. Marvelous grace of our loving Lord. Grace that exceeds our sin and our guilt. Yonder on Calvary's mount outpoured. There where the blood of the Lamb was spilled. The refrain is this. Grace, grace, God's grace. Grace that will pardon and cleanse within. You can join me. Grace, grace, God's grace. Grace that is greater than all our sin. Grace is what saves us. 
And then we're going to have pastoral, or pastoral, elder candidates memorize this phrase. And we're going to make them do it publicly in front of you. Here we go. I am what I am by the grace of God, by the grace of God so free. I am what I am by the grace of God for time and eternity. I'm saved by grace, I'm kept by grace, and by His grace His face I'll see. I am what I am by the grace of God for time and eternity. <laughs> We're going to make sure that some of our elder candidates can sing. And so that we could just kind of chime in behind them. Oh, friends, that's the kind of man you want leading the house of God. A man who has strong convictions that this word belongs to none other than God himself. And one who has so experienced the reality of the doctrine of grace in his life through faith in Jesus Christ that he knows that he was completely unworthy. But God in his mercy grabbed him and lifted him up. And took he who was dead and made him alive. That, my friends, is who you want leading you in this church. That is one of the great truths. All right, all right, all right, all right, all right let me just keep moving. I've got to go by this. Goodbye. Uh, um, so the conviction is the source of the contents of the, of, of the word of God. comes from God himself. The uniqueness of the contents of the word is, is this wonderful truth, this wonderful, marvelous concept called grace. It's not about fairness. It's not about performance. It's about the free gift of God found in Jesus Christ, the Lord. And then lastly, there is this witnessing, witnessing of the power of the contents of the word of God in his life and in the lives of the people that he has taught and that is the power of the word to change a life to make bad people good in God's sight this is one of the great convictions and this is one of the great teachings of Titus Titus says this we are to be zealous for good works Ooh, zealous I like that word I get a little that way sometimes myself. Ready for every good work. And twice he says we are to devote ourselves to good works. To devote ourselves to good works. I'm going to close with this. And if you have to leave before we take communion, I get it. I get it. But I'm just going to close with this because this is the important part. Not that the rest isn't. Titus 3. Three through eight. I added three when I put four through eight in here because three is important. For we, why don't you read that with me? For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. I just got your life story, didn't I? That's what it's like in the world without Jesus. That's what it's like. But, but, but grace. But when the goodness and the loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, what did he do? He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness. Get that part. He saved us not because of our performance. He saved us according to his mercy. Through the washing and regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he has poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. So that, being justified by what? Yes, it's not works. By his grace, his free gift. We might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Titus, 
This saying is trustworthy and I want you to insist on these things so that, this is a purpose statement, so that those who believe in God may be careful to devote themselves to what? We're not saved by good works. We're saved unto and for good works. You see, you have to be secure in your salvation and in the love and the mercy and the goodness of God before you can actively minister to others. Because if you're not secure in who you are in Christ, you're going to do things for other people to meet a need that only Jesus was meant to meet. You're going to do things on behalf of God for yourself and not for others. So this is vitally important. I'm going to end with this video and then we're going to take communion together. Um, this video is, is a man by the name of Jeff Vanderstelt. I'd like you to listen to what he has to say because it really is kind of the educational point for today, our learning point. In fact, I would just want to offer up to you, have you done much work in Luke? Study Luke 3, 4, 5, and then do a parallel study of Acts and say, okay, what is God teaching us about his spirit? Jesus says, before he sends them out to be his witnesses, wait for power. Don't do this without me. Don't do this without my spirit. And if you look at how Jesus did it, his very beginning of his ministry, he gets baptized and the Holy Spirit ascends on him and he hears the Father say, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. The first question I have for you is, have you heard him tell you that? Has the Spirit, as Paul says in Romans chapter 5, poured the love of the Father into your hearts? As he says in chapter 8, you can call God Abba, Daddy, Father. Because if he hasn't, most of you will do ministry so that the Father will love you instead of do ministry because you know the Father loves you. And the problem is, you will use people to gain love instead of serve people to give love. The Father has already given you all that he can in his Son. And the Spirit has been poured into your heart so that you might have a testimony that you belong to God as a beloved child. Do you know that? If you don't know that, don't go further. Wait. Wait. Randy, a guy I got to disciple, and I still am. I remember he used to pray and used to say, Lord, God, would you please just, and that was his prayer life, and I never heard him call God Father, and finally I stopped him one day. I said, Randy, do you know the Father? Do you know his love for you? He said, of course I do. I know God loves me as Father, and I said, well, I've never heard you call him Dad. And I said, I want you just to go alone until the Spirit reveals that to you. Let's not go any further until that happens. And he just asked the Spirit, would you show me the love of the Father? And he experienced the Spirit pour the love of the Father into his heart, and he just melted knowing God's love. And I saw a hard, cold theologian turn into a soft, caring, missy, missiological genius in how he loved people and cared for people. You've got to have that first. I want to invite those who are going to be serving the elements this morning to please come on up and uh, start to uh, hand them out. I want to use our final moments in uh, uh, the time of uh, communion, bread and cup, and I, I want to use them for you to spend a few moments in the presence of God waiting. Do you know, has the Spirit of God poured out in your heart that you are God's child? Are you secure in the love of the Father? Because until you are, most of what you will do will be trying to find something that only Jesus can give you. And he's already given it 
to you. So take these next few moments as the elements are kind of handed around, and I want you to sit in these moments dwelling on the love of God based upon the cross. How deep the Father's love for us How vast beyond all measure That He should give His only Son To make a wretch His treasure how great the pain of searing loss, the 